Aquinas Hayes was 17. His mother describes him as fun-loving and a guiding light to his younger siblings. In our household, he was kind of the leader and the man of the house. You know, um, not just big brother, but kind of dad to the kids. They really looked up to their older brother. He was like their guide and light. He was shot and killed by Portland police officer Andrew Hurst on February 9th. The family is seeking justice, which would include an indictment of Officer Hurst. I spoke with Qantas's mother, Venus Hayes, about her son and the lack of transparency by the police and by Portland city officials. This is Progressive Spirit. I'm John Shuck. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network and PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon. This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Shuck. On February 9th, 2017, in northeast Portland, a 17-year-old child, Qantas Derek Hayes, was shot three times, twice in the chest, and once through the head at point-blank range. He was shot and killed by Portland police officer Andrew Hurst. The family of Qantas Hayes is calling on Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, who also serves as police commissioner, to instruct the district attorney to seek an indictment for Officer Hurst. The family is not hopeful that the officer will be indicted. In 2013, Officer Hurst was involved in the shooting death of Merle Hatch. Hurst was not indicted for that shooting death. On March 1st, a demonstration for justice for Qantas Hayes at the Portland City Council resulted in a testimony before the mayor and city council members by Venus Hayes, the mother of Qantas Hayes. This is the audio of the address by Mrs. Hayes. My name is Venus Hayes, and I'm the mother of Qantas Hayes, the 17-year-old that was shot and killed by Officer Andrew Hurst on February 9th. I would like to thank all for gathering here today, both in remembrance for my son, Qantas Hayes, and in support of my family's fight for justice on his behalf. It's been 20 days since Qantas was taken from me. The days passing, his death felt like a lifetime for my family. Myself, for my family and myself, we waited patiently for the city, its officials, to provide us answers surrounding the events that took my son's life. As the details are slowly made available to the public, my family, has had the better burden of piecing together what occurred by fact-finding statements given in various social media sites and news outlets, rather than receiving those from those receiving them from those working his, this investigation. Since his death, we have learned that Officer Hurst, who was also involved in the death of Merrill Hatch, shot Qantas a total of three times. 
To clarify earlier statements and news reports, my son died immediately as a result of a gunshot wound to his head. My son was born and raised in Portland. Qantas was not a thug or a gang member or some homeless street kid. He was a, he was a funny, adventurous teen who, like most kids, at times could be a little rebellious. He was my child. His life mattered. Yeah. And, I want, yeah. and I want to know why he was killed. <laughs> I'm asking the public to stand with my family and me as we seek answers. I am asking the public to stand by us as we demand justice. Let my son's life be the means of change. We ask again any witnesses of the events leading up to Qantas' death to reach out to our family's attorney, Ashley Albies. The Portland police, your local pastor, or any of the many advocacy groups in Portland. Thank you. We have no more other statements at this time. That was Venus Hayes, the mother of 17-year-old Quanis Hayes, who was shot and killed by Portland police officer Andrew Hurst. Later that same morning, outside the council chambers, members of the family of Quanis Hayes addressed the media. Terrence Hayes, the cousin of Venus Hayes, called the death of Quanis Hayes a murder and called on all Oregonians to stand up to the tyranny and, quote, acts of terrorism that continue to be allowed to happen by other Americans who have been given the authority to protect us. Swanis Hayes was a young African-American male. What's scary is, is that he was born in this country, his mother was born in this country, his grandmother was born in this country, and this country lay silent while an American was murdered. You do not have the right to murder children, American children. These are at the terrors of terrorism that continue to be allowed to happen by other Americans who have been given the authority to protect us. We simply ask this, and we ask that all are going to stand with us, that the governor office, the mayor's office and the police bureau stop being silent. That they stop justifying their silence under the guise of justice. This family deserves justice. This family deserves answers. And so those agencies are willing to hear answers. must think. Moose Connors Hayes was an Oregonian before he was anything else. He was born here, he was raised here. Killed. And he was murdered. <laughs> and at some point, we have to decide that we don't lay down so easily to the death of one of our own. <laughs> he was not just our child. This city raised him. Yes. Yes. This city has to rise up against any tyranny that allows his children to be murdered. There is no excuse for Officer Hurt. He reacted to a call and he didn't respond. He's supposed to be trained properly to respond. Instead, he continues to react to calls. When will Oregonians stand and force police, government entities, and the like to respond to these situations and no longer react? We 
We are at the point of value. Yes. The DAIS needs to stop putting the power in the hand of its underlings when, when its children is being murdered. Anybody who couldn't get an indictment the first time certainly won't get it the next. And if two Oregonians stand, then we'll just be a family that's playing for justice. But that's not right. That's not it's not right that we stand by ourselves. It's not right that we cry by ourselves. Nope. So we pray that every Argonian stand. That when it's time to call, we make calls. When it's time to write, we write. And when it's time to march, we march. <laughs> That was Terrence Hayes, first cousin of Venus Hayes. On March 1st, Mr. Hayes spoke to a press conference organized by the family about what he called the murder of Qantas Hayes and the responsibility of all Americans to speak, write, and march for justice. As hip and cool and progressive as Portland, Oregon presents itself, it suffers from a cancer. A cancer so malignant that it threatens to destroy the body and soul of this beautiful Pacific Northwest city. Portland and the entire state of Oregon have a long, sad, and violent history of racism. William Faulkner could have been talking about Portland when he wrote that the past isn't dead. It isn't even past. Just a week before the shooting death of Qantas Hayes, the Portland Tribune published a piece called The High Cost of Being Black in Multnomah County. It reported that compared to whites, black residents are charged at a ratio of three to one, for failing to use vehicle lights, four to one for littering, five to one for possession of a controlled substance, six to one for interfering with an officer, six to one for disabled parking violations, nine to one for jaywalking, and 15 to one for failing to cross at a right angle. The Portland Tribune reported that African-Americans who were interviewed for the article saw the petty crime violations as an excuse for the police to get names and to search pockets for contraband. To put it clearly, African-Americans and other people of color are targeted in Multnomah County and in the city of Portland. Then, on February 9th, a white cop shoots a black kid. How do we begin to remove the cancer of racism? According to the family of Qantas Hayes, it begins with taking responsibility for one another and for calling out abuse of power, and in this particular case, seeking an indictment of police officer Andrew Hurst so there can be a trial and at least the possibility of justice. On March 16th, six weeks after the shooting death of Qantas Hayes, I spoke with Qantas's mother Venus and with the leader of Don't Shoot Portland, Teresa Rayford, who organized the demonstration before city council on March 1st. And Mrs. Hayes, I'm very sorry. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you. Mrs. Hayes, Qantas, uh, at 17, uh, was the oldest of five children. Yeah. Tell me about him. What was he like? Um, Qantas was a kind of a fun-loving, not kind of, he was a fun-loving little boy, always looking for a joke, always trying to be the life of the party, you know what I mean? Um, in our household, he was kind of the leader and the man of the house, you know. Um, their, me and their father separated um, a while back, so, um, but he's still actively involved in the children's lives, you know. Um, so Qantas took on that role as, like, not just big brother, but kind of dad to the kids. They really looked up to their older brother. 
he was like their guiding light. His, their guiding light. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. <laughs> now, was he in school? Um, he went to Centennial High School. Yeah. Um, he was going to transfer um, over to Centennial. He needed. He was lacking like two credits to graduate, so they, he was going to go to Centennial's um, alternative school for the last part of this year. But yeah. Well, this has to be terrible for for all your family and, and your other four children. Yeah, how how are they doing? Um, the I have three little ones, so their ages are four, three, and six months. Of course, the baby is unaware, um, but the three and four year old, they taking it hard because they. I've never talked to them about death, so they don't really understand what's going on. To them, they'll see Quanis soon. So how did he get his nickname, Moose? <laughs> um, when he was born, uh, I was in labor maybe 28 long hours. Uh, the show Rocky and Bullwinkle was playing on the TV in the hospital room, and when he came out after such a hard labor, his hair was, like, curled up on the side, and my mom looked at the TV, and she was like, oh, we're going to call him Moose, Bullwinkle T. Moose. <laughs> <laughs> Would you talk about the night he was killed? When did you last see him, and how did you find out what happened? Um, well, at the time, um, I wasn't staying at the house. I was in a um, treatment facility um, getting ready to transition to move into our place. Um, actually, I, I was going to move in February 10th, you know, um, so um, I was I was getting packing up all my things, ready to move into our new place, and um, about 7 that evening, I was on my way to a meeting, and my mom showed up. And they said that they found out through Facebook that Quantus was shot. And but my mom, you know, that Quantus was her favorite grandchild, you know. He wasn't the oldest, but he was the first one that she saw born. So, um excuse me. So she 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 didn't really believe it. So and when she tried to tell me, of course I didn't believe it either. Um my uh, my brothers and my cousins showed up. We're a real tight-knit family, so if one hears something, it's like a grapevine train, chain reaction, and they'll all rush to support, you know. So um, my cousins, you know, he was he had a big hand in raising Aquinas, you know. Um, so um, he was pretty serious, strong in knowing that it was Aquinas, while me and my mom was kind of in denial. But we never received a phone call, anything, um, we found out through Facebook. You know. Found out through Facebook. I mean, they didn't, they didn't call you uh, no. as your mo- as no. His mother. No, um, Quantus had got into some trouble maybe two months before then. And he he was taken to um, Harry's mother as um, like a, a, not a detention home, but a holding facility for youth. And they was able to call me right then and there on the spot, ask me did I want him released to my mom and everything. So it wasn't a question of did they have my number or could they find me. It was just, it, it wasn't a courtesy that was extended to our family to let us know that my baby had been shot. You know, They just didn't reach out. Mm. It was kind of like we had to find out hard luck. Found out through Facebook, and in fact, that's when uh, on Wednesday, March first, you spoke to the Portland City Council. Yeah, and that's what you uh, told them there. You said you and your family uh, has had to piece uh, together uh, information from social media. Yeah, um, we sat down. Um, 
Qantas died on March 9th, so I'd say about March, I mean, not March, um, February 9th. So about February, I want to say 10th or 11th, we sat down and talked to a detective, Camara. You know, um, they didn't offer us any information at the time, n- nothing, you know, um, all they could tell us was, don't believe social media. Um, Qantas was not shot in the back 12 times. Uh, you know. That was what uh, so was going around on social media. Yeah, that he was shot in the back 12 times. You know, of course, you know, hearing that is, is enough to I'm send me into a, a panic attack. Mm-hmm. And the detectives, they wanted to you know, squash that, 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 that's not what happened. But at the same time, not offer us any information. Um, after that, um, maybe a week or two after that, we sat down, um, like mid February, we sat down and we talked to, um, the DA's office. And at the time they wanted to, you know, squash the things that was going around on social media that Qantas wasn't shot in the back or anything like that. So at that time they told us that Qantas was shot three times in the torso. And it was at point blank range and he was facing the officer. That's what they said. Um, Maybe a couple of days after that, we get the death certificate. And Point blank, the DA lied to us. Um, Qantas was shot in the head. That was what killed him. Um, he was shot twice in the torso, but what killed him was a gunshot wound to the head. So they had told you originally that he had been shot in the torso three times, mm-hmm. but in, in fact, it was once in the head and twice in the torso. Yeah. Um, at the meeting with the DA's office, there was a gentleman in there. Um, I exclude using his name, but um, there was a gentleman in there, and he worked for the DA's office, and he was um, with the medical examiner at the time of the autopsy. So he was there, and he listened to the DA give us that false information. You know, um, But like I said, it didn't come out until we got the death certificate that Qantas was shot in the head. But at the time that the DA was telling us that he was shot you know, three times in the torso— um, in the chest, rather, um, it just wasn't true. And the guy that was in the office with us, um, who works for the DA's office, he never tried to, you know, correct what the DA said. He just let that go on, thinking that we wouldn't know, I guess, you know what I mean, that we wouldn't find out until after the grand jury had, you know. This is a conversation with Venus Hayes, mother of Qantas Hayes, shot three times, twice in the chest and once in the head by Portland police officer Andrew Hurst on February 9th. The family of Qantas Hayes is seeking an indictment of Officer Hurst, who is now on paid administrative leave. I'm also speaking with the organizer of Don't Shoot Portland, Teresa Rayford. This is Progressive Spirit. What do we know and what don't we know about what happened on February 9th? Well, as it stands right now, we don't know anything. Um, we just know what the death certificate says, that Qantas was shot once in the head and twice in the torso. It's the only thing that we know. And so um, we know the officer's name, Andrew Hurst. Yes. This but, is our, and I'm sorry to cut you off, but um, and we should say also, too, that this is not the first shooting that Officer Hurst was involved in. This is the second one in a seven-year time span. But his career was seven years. This is the second shooting in a four-year time span. So right. it's important to mention that, that this is not this officer's first time, you know, being involved in a shooting. 
And now uh, we're in the middle of March. It's been since February 9th. Uh, as I understand, uh, you haven't even had a funeral yet for Kiwanis. No, we haven't. Um, the public raised money from Chicago to here down to Lake Oswego. Um, the the community was real um, supportive of me and our family. And people raised money. Um, GoFundMe has not released those funds. Um, victim assistance, um, Multnomah County victim assistance, um, they kind of promised us um, help with the funeral expenses. We have yet to receive any funds. Mm. You haven't had any funds and you haven't had any any closure at all, no. uh, as no. if you could even call closure anyway, but nothing for the family to be able to. No. And because the money is being withheld from us, um, we can't. We ran out of time to have an open casket funeral. So since then, and, and no details have been released, uh, do, do investigations generally take this long before they go to a grand jury? Well, I was going to say that even the attorney, Ashley Albies, who we found uh, for the family to be represented, um, she's never been this early on this part of this. And what we remember about Mike Brown, he was murdered in August on the 9th of August, and his uh, grand jury, they didn't go in until November of that same year. And so... Based on what they are receiving right now, I mean, this past week, there was information that came out about the grand jury proceedings in Ferguson. And there was so much information that showed that, you know, it was racially motivated. There wasn't any assault. There wasn't any grabbing of the gun. There was no real, you know, serious reason to murder the child. And so we can kind of in our minds assume why it took so long for them to process and have the grand jury trial because they were trying to exonerate the officer of the charges. And I'm hoping that that's not what's happening in Oregon. Um, this is a clear situation. And like Venus just said, within seven years on duty, you've had two shootings in the last four years that have resulted in the loss of life. You know, why are you even still on the force, for one thing, and why wouldn't we look at indicting an officer with that type of track record? Um, it doesn't seem to me, as a citizen of Portland, um, and especially with the work that we do for police accountability, that anyone would feel, you know, safe in our community with someone like that. So an indictment uh, is, is what you're looking for? Um, it's what I keep faith that it happened, but um, at this point, um, Statistic in Oregon show that the officer did, well, not just in Oregon, across the country, an officer-involved shootings rarely is there an indictment, you know, very rarely is there ever an indictment. So at this point, um, I don't know if that's even plausible, you know what I mean, um, that the officer be indicted. You know, statistics show that that just doesn't happen, you know, um, from what I see because this is my first time ever really taking a look into officer-involved shootings. But since, you know, my son's death, I, I kind of, you know, look into old cases and things of that nature. Um, like in Kendra James' case, the public was made aware. Um, in the James Perez case, you know, the public was made aware. You know, there was facts that came out in the media. There was facts given to the family. In our case, none. They haven't even communicated with you at all. At all. No. And so uh, you went to the uh, Portland City Council and, and gave your testimony there. Uh, were you invited to do that? or? Venus <laughs> <laughs> had reached out to the community. We, we yes. had already been in contact before that week, but that Monday 
um, she had reached out to community. And so I was, you know, I'm an organizer and I, I understand the political infrastructure and how it can be utilized. Mm-hmm. And I know that if we don't have the, the agencies, the status quo standing on our behalf, that we have to do nonviolent direct actions. We have to do a demonstration in order to satisfy that people are aware of our civil liberties. And so we organized that event in partnership with my friend Mimi and activists that have been, you know, doing sit-ins at City Hall over the last couple of weeks. And I think that um, from the time that we got there, Venus knows we talked that Monday, and I was like, I'll take you to talk to the mayor. We'll get him to, you know. And we get there, and I get this text from his communications director saying, hey, Miss Rafer, let us know what time you want to bring the family up. And I was like, huh? And I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, well, yeah, let's let's make this happen. And it was a beautiful thing because um, not only was it the first day of Women's International, you know, Women's uh, History Month, but Venus came in right during the time that they were doing the proclamation. And so part of our demonstration to just get everything ready for her was, you know, ain't I a woman? You know, they were talking to the proclamation. People were making statements about women's history and all of the value women have in society. And we kept asking the question, like, ain't I a woman? And that question is still being asked because in this country, there are women of color that are losing their children to police violence and brutality, and no one hears us. No one can hear their cries. Nobody cares about their children. And we're trying to figure out if we're in this world where all these women are becoming united and we're all standing on the same uh, threshold of, of seeking power for our families and our future. Where are they when we need them? You know, ain't aren't we women? Ain't I a woman? You know, ain't Venus a woman? I think it was very strong that when she said it, everybody did a, a stand and repeat. You know, it was like a chant. She said, ain't I a woman? And then everybody said, ain't I a woman? She right. didn't know that was going to happen. You know, and I know that the people there, when she got to make those statements, they understood where she was coming from. We just pulled back from Sojourner Truth. Like bring the truth in. <laughs> that was a powerful meeting. I, I, I was I was there and and hearing that and uh, hearing also the chance and being able to address uh, the mayor and the city council and what you said was uh, was uh, so powerful. Yeah, I should um, mention also that um, Mayor Willer has been um, really uh, Mayor Willer has been really um, encouraging. As far as um, meeting with the family, we've had since the city council meeting, we've had um, a sit-in with him and his um, people. <laughs> um, so it was, it was. We didn't learn a lot of information. We didn't learn any information, new information about um, Quantus's case. But it was. I thought it was a polite courtesy that the mayor was even willing to sit down with us. Um, he's also extended that. Um, you know. That invitation anytime we might need. I just at this point don't understand why we would need to again when there is no, you know, information, new information about the case being presented. But I do thank the mayor's office for sitting down and speaking with us and taking that time out and being willing in the future to do the same thing. You're listening to Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schock. We're going to take a break and continue the conversation with Venus Hayes and Teresa Rayford. Stay with us. Thank you. 
are listening to Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schuck. You're listening to an interview with Venus Hayes, mother of 17-year-old Qantas Hayes, who was shot and killed by Portland police officer Andrew Hurst on February 9th. I'm also speaking with the organizer of Don't Shoot Portland, Teresa Rayford. And the mayor uh, spoke to uh, some of the media, and he said at that time that uh, the transcripts from the grand jury would be open. My question was, is the mayor offering anything new, or is this common practice anyway? That's common, common practice, practice anyway. Yeah. It's nothing new. The thing that he can offer is indicting. He's he's not just our mayor. He's the police commissioner. He has the power himself to he, make that he decision. He has the power himself to work with the district attorney to say, you know what, as the commissioner, I, I want to seek murder trial. You know, and if he's not guilty, then we'll find out in a court of law. But he has that power, and him being a new mayor on the on the foot of what left, you know, what was Hill's uh, legacy, I think that he needs to use courage and integrity as his guide in what to do next. I don't think that, you know, publicly putting your hands on this woman, standing there in front of her family and the world, and saying that you're going to do something, and then um, not doing what is in your power what is in direct line of your power, um, I think that's a disingenuous statement. And I think that if he is really willing to do whatever it takes, then he'll seek a court of law for this issue, and it won't be the grand jury. Because that's what needs to happen, because with grand juries, uh, generally in cases like this, uh, tell me what happens. Um, Well, I think we should um, first say that um, the DA's office and Don Rees, I think that's his name, um, he was the um, DA also in the first shooting that Officer Hurst was involved in, um, the shooting of um, Merrill Hatch that resulted in death. You know, um, he didn't get an indictment then. You know, do we, do I, I don't know if having the same DA on a case where he didn't get an indictment on the first time, having him again on this case doesn't look promising, you know, um, I'm not expecting them to hand in an indictment. He didn't get one on the first time when a guy was just holding a, a cell phone receiver, you know. So I'm, I don't really hold much faith that, you know, an indictment at this point is even what the DA's office is even seeking. You know, it's been, you know, in the past, it, you know, it, it seems as though that the DA's office is like, you know, in cahoots with the you know, officers. It's like, it, even though they portray not to be of the same officers, but it's kind of like a brotherhood of such, you know what I mean? So I, I fully expect the DA's office to protect their officers. It seems know. like we need a different system altogether for seems dealing like with it. police shootings. Yeah, yeah. A, a special prosecutor. A special prosecutor. We need Tell a me. special prosecutor. We need the uh, the legislator to appoint the, the attorney general the power to select and appoint one so that the governor can make that uh, something that we have here. We've been asking since uh, Kids Harbor was the governor for the governor to have a meeting with our groups and some of the other legal entities that are out here to discuss this. We have a long legislative session. It would have been great to have that on the table with all of the issues that we have in the state of Oregon. Um, and especially with the disparities we have in Multnomah County of overrepresentation, uh, there's already we just had another report that came out. I believe that it's called the um, the morning after report or something like that that came out through Disability Oregon. Um, that's talking about the way that blacks and Latinos and people of color are treated within our jails and other institutions. So if we know that there's been violence, if we know that there's harassment, intimidation, crimes and assaults against people, murder. 
we need a special prosecutor in the state of Oregon because we can't mandate it through consciousness. We can't hope that training is going to make someone not uh, violate someone else's safety. Uh, we're going to have to assume that it's going to have to be a legal standard, and we need to put one in position. Um, also, the um, grand jury, in the case of a grand jury, they're not sequestered. So um, my son has been majorly demonized in the uh, media. You know, this is all stuff that the grand jury, they, they're recommended not to listen or get on social media or listen to the news. But, you know, how likely is that when I'm sure, you know, things like that was a part of their everyday life before they came to be on a grand jury? Um my son was, you know, he's not even here to defend himself. So that day we'll never know what happened. We'll only have what this officer does is fighting for his freedom, say, you know, um, his fellow officers who we fully expect to come to his aid and rally a forum, you know. Um, he's, he, Officer Hurst feel comfortable enough to take the stand in his grand jury trial. So, of course, he's going to say things like, I'm, I was in fear of my life, you know, things like that. The grand jury only hear that, you know, they won't they won't really hear who Qantas was. What did he mean to family and community? You know, just things like that. When you think in terms of um, the media saying that he was a burglar or that he had a replica gun, you know, you can't expect the, the jury to be non-biased. Uh, and, and so there's just really a need for transparency here. I mean, an, an indictment doesn't need a conviction, but it does mean that we need a, it's an open trial. That's yeah. right. That's right. I mean, when we look at what happened with the grand jury, like everybody, when Ferguson happened, you had officers at unions celebrating um, the death of Mike Brown and the heroeship mm. of Darren Wilson. And then now when you read those transcripts and you see the information and you see that, wow, some of the things that were said in the media never actually happened, um, the undermining of the person of the human, of the child, um, just, you know, the the point that he said that the reason he was threatened was not that Mike had a weapon or anything. He was like, his body, his hands, those were weapons, and so they should be used as weapons because this big black kid, you know, scared me. Just saying that a person is violent or deemed as a threat or a weapon because of their humanity, um, That's if that's been getting cops off, if that's been getting trained law enforcement officers from being held accountable in murders, then we have a very sick society. Um, and if we as Oregonians allow something like that to come in during this Trump administration and everything that is carrying with it, we're following Larnell Bruce's murder. We're following several murders and assaults of people. We're following hate crimes that have been dismissed by the same police force that have told people, don't worry about, you know, information that's being distributed by the Ku Klux Klan. Why would we not worry about terrorist organizations terrorizing our children and our communities? And why would those same organizations that we already know through the feds have infiltrated local law enforcement agencies across the country? Why wouldn't we hold them accountable in a system of conduct? Why wouldn't we all say, okay, let's get a special prosecutor, and especially the people that are tired of us protesting. You know, that's a balance of equal justice, or at least access to it. Right now we have none of it, because I'm considered a threat. She's considered a threat. Her child that's out there playing right now is dressed the same way that they described the young man whose life they took. Yeah. 
Jeans and yeah. a hoodie with Which dreads. Is, Jeans and this a hoodie. That's it. Two year old brother looks like that description. That's mm -hmm. not a descriptor for somebody. You know, you don't take a, a person's life, and then you don't have a system that's going to hold them accountable. We, as Oregon, we should suggest that. As Oregonians, we should suggest a more accountable system. Why would anybody fight that? I'm speaking with Teresa Rayford of Don't Shoot Portland and Venus Hayes, the mother of Qantas Hayes, who was shot and killed by police, uh, shot three times, once in the head on February 9th. And uh, no information has been given uh, as of this date, uh, which is now March uh, 16th. You have on the cut, Teresa, on the cover of your Facebook page, it says Multnomah County targets black people, 320% more likely to be charged with a crime, 500% more likely to serve time in jail, 600% more likely to be sentenced to prison. Uh, you were quoted in another article saying it was only after talking to white girls uh, that you learned that police didn't know all young kids by name, just the black kids. Do you mind spelling this out, perhaps both of you? What is it like to be black in Multnomah County. Mm. Mm. You want to go first? <laughs> For me, my experience in Multnomah County being black, um, I'm not from Oregon. You know, I've been here um, off and on since 1999. I came here when I was pregnant with Qantas. Um, I immediately left, uh, not due to any particular situation, but um, I came back in 2004 and the Portland that I left in 1999 looks different than the Portland I came back to in 2004. My experience here has not been totally um, bad. You know, it hasn't totally been corrupt. Um, there has been a couple of times, you know, that even me, a single mother, been profiled by the police. You know what I mean? Walking down the street, I lived in a bad neighborhood. Like I said, I'm not from here, so I wouldn't know which neighborhood was bad and which one was good. You know, um, at the time, all of Portland looked better than Chicago, where I'm originally from. So I thought all areas, because they look nice, Portland is a clean city, you know, I thought all areas was a nice area. And come to find out, you know, certain areas have been targeted. You know, um, I've been with like my brother is a diehard Bears fan. He's 35 years old. Um, he was head of security at the Ninth Hotel right now. Um, he was head of security at the airport. You know, hardworking brother was in the military. Like I say, he's a diehard Bears fan walking down the street on 162nd and Burnside. And he was pulled over and profiled by the police. You know, they, they thought he was in a gang because he had um, Bears memorabilia. You know, um, that don't look good. You know, my brother's older than me. And, you know, he served his country in the Marine Corps, you know, um, gave back to his community. And for that to happen to him was kind of discouraging. You know, for me to witness that was kind of discouraging. You know, my, my boys, I, I raised, um, besides Qantas, I have three other young men that I'm raising, and it's scary, you know, in light of what happened to Qantas, it's scary. Like Teresa was saying, um, my son right now has on jeans, a hoodie, and dreads. I dress him like that purposely. You know, he's a two-year-old little boy. Uh, if he's perceived as a threat because of the way he looked, the dreads aren't new. He had them since he was <laughs> like six months. So, you know, it's a look and a style for him. You know, it's all he knows. You know, I don't think he should lose his life for it. You know, um, that's not to say, that's not me saying that 
that, you know, I was profiled by all officers or my brother had a bad experience. Like I said, he regularly sat down with the chief, um, chief of police at the time, you know, so our, our experiences here as a family in Portland hasn't been like total, you know, just racism, but I can honestly say Portland is the only city I've ever lived in where I've been called the N-word, you know, just Say, say that again. I'm sorry, but that Portland is the only city that I've lived in that I've been called the N-word. I can I can say that. Um, hmm. I, I I lived in Ontario, Oregon, and I've never been called the N-word down there. You know, um, Portland is is the like the the only place I've ever experienced racism. And I lived in a New Mexico, Colorado, a lot of different places in the United States, and never once that I haven't encountered blatant racism like I have here. It is just this profiling in, in many different ways. It's just, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a fact of life, mm-hmm. a daily fact of life. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like as if they have to accommodate the whiteness. Like, we, we have to work hard to make people feel satisfied in their safety, in their lives, um, in their just, their respect, the respect that they have for white people. Like, they don't care about us. I grew up here, and I'm telling you, in 1981, it was March of 1981, the Portland police threw dead possums on the steps of my grandmother's restaurants. You know what I'm saying? They were trying to intimidate and harass the black community, and they had over 500 complaints that month. I mean, that year. It was only March. But you're assaulting, you're intimidating, you're harassing, you're continuously, like, profiling, investigating. Like, who can live under that? They they ask us questions like, why don't you want the SROs in your school, which are student resource officers? And just like I asked the district attorney the other night in reference to the MacArthur Red Foundation, where those numbers came from, do the policing partners, do the wraparound services, do all of these additional services that are focused on minorities, are they adding to the disparity of our overrepresentation in our in our institutions? And he said, absolutely they do. Of course they do. Those are government policies and those are government mandated funds that are working with different agencies to make sure that they hit their bottom lines. That's how this works. And so we've become the commodity in Oregon. We know that uh, blacks were outlawed because they didn't want them here. Uh, They didn't even make slavery legal here because they didn't want blacks here. So what would they do in order to accommodate the Negro problem? Uh, James Baldwin called it Negro removal. Here we call it urban renewal and we turn the Negro into a commodity. You know, there's money out of black poverty. Venus Hayes and Teresa Rayford. Uh, Venus is the mother of uh, 17-year-old Qantas Hayes, who was killed on February 9th. Um, what would you like to say to the people of Portland? What 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 can we do now? Um, as a mom, as the mother of a son who was killed, um, I like to say, don't give up. You know, I need my family needs. Other families that's in the same situation as us need community support. Um, I'm here at this point asking, you know, the community to stand with us and push for change. You know, officers need body cams. No matter what the argument against body cams is, you know, video footage, no matter the way you try to, you know, put your own spin on it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it, it just doesn't lie, you know? Video footage is something we need. Officers need to wear body cams, you know? They need to hold, be held personally accountable here. And you need know, to have them on. They do, at all times. Um, 
at the D, I should mention at the DA's office, they said that um, it hasn't been. No, I'm sorry, at the meeting with Mayor Willer, they, it was mentioned by um, somebody in his office that there hasn't been a police shooting in seven years. I beg to differ. Yeah. Um, February 9th, there was two shootings. The white guy lived, you know. So with that being said, I, I just like to ask the people of Portland, just stand with our family. Justice needs to be served. You know, I don't want my son to die in vain. I, I wouldn't know how to explain to my other children, you know, that Moose died for wearing a hoodie and jeans, you know. I don't want him to die for that reason. Let his death mean something. Let it mean change. Mm -hmm. Teresa Rayford and Venus Hayes have been my guests on Progressive Spirit. Thank you both for being with me today. Thank you. Earlier this year, I had a conversation with Teresa Rayford of Don't Shoot Portland about how this organization formed. I include part of that conversation here so listeners can know what's behind this justice movement. In 2010, your nephew was shot and killed in Old Town Portland. What was his name? His name was Andre Payton. And what happened? Well, um, he had he had grew up in Portland. Um, you know, my dad, my my brother actually was in the penitentiary for several years, but he had custody of his son when he got out. Um, and Andre had asked if he could go to this club, the Barracuda nightclub downtown in Northwest uh, Cooch area. And my brother kept telling him he couldn't go down there. He was like, no, you're not old enough to go to a club. You don't need to go. And he said, well, Dad, it's all ages. You know, I'm just going to listen to some music. And so one of the weekends when he was staying with his mom, he asked the same question. And she said, well, just go on, go down there. Call me when you get there. And within a couple of minutes after him arriving, he called his mom. And about three minutes later, he was shot on the ground. Um, and so as a community, I had I had just come home from Texas. I'd been, you know, I was born and raised in Portland, but I had come home to visit and it devastated me. You know, I, sure. I couldn't believe that this child that just graduated from high school that June was, you know, before September, you know, was even over that he was dead. And then uh, the thing that really shocked me is the outreach at the church. When we saw over 500 people showed up to the church for his funeral, um, I saw so many people that were there. And I thought, oh, wow, thank you guys for honoring the life of my nephew. And so many people said, oh, no, his mom is my cousin or his grandma is my sister. Or I realized that a lot of those people in that church were related to my nephew and that people that were, you know, fourth generation Oregonians like myself, that the children that were out here uh, perpetrating violence upon each other, that is very likely that they're related. Um, it's not likely that if there was a black shooter that was involved in my nephew's death, that that kid doesn't know our family or our family doesn't know their family. It's just the challenge of the children knowing each other outside of gang circles or um, community network circles. And so... When I saw that um, as part of the challenge, because I didn't think like, oh, wow, the gang violence is so out of line, out of control. I thought, wow, our our people are so out of touch. Uh, there needs to be more resources. We need to have more communication because it's so sad to have everybody connect at a funeral and be happy to see each other and be like it was like a reunite a reunion there. And. All of that was sad to me. I wanted to bring the reunion to everyday life. I, I decided to become an activist so that I could basically pull our community back together, bridging communication, uh, bridging civic engagement, uh, bridging um, 
unity, you know, uh, getting people on the same page. We had so many issues that we felt we were on different sides of, and we hadn't communicated. And so it was just to the disadvantage of our children. It was for the detriment um, of them, you know, and I thought we need to do something about it. And that's when you started to organize to resist uh, violence. Yeah, in all forms. In all forms. And then in 2014, following the killing of uh, Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, you organized Don't Shoot Portland. Uh, tell me about uh, Don't Shoot Portland. What What, what is happening yeah. with that? Well, actually, uh, Don't Shoot Portland, it was an immediate response to the killing in Ferguson. Uh, being an activist and a, a community advocate, there were a lot of tools that we had, skill set that I had um, that was that was able it gave me power to support some of the people in Ferguson at the time of the uprising and so as I saw the support being crucial to their movement I saw the need for us to be connected on this side so that that support could continue uh, because I realized the kids weren't going to just protest and go home and I think they stayed outside for almost over a hundred days uh, straight would not go to school would not go back into the houses to live inside or anything so we needed to you know, basically create strategies to keep them organized. And when we did that um, here in Portland, one of the things that we tried to figure out is how is what's happening in Ferguson relative to what's happening here in Portland? And how do we build a movement that's not only going to sustain the necessities of uh, solidarity for them, but will help us build a foundational structure for us? And so we came up with the name Don't Shoot Portland because we wanted to focus on not only the police brutality, but also the the black-on-black crime, the community violence, uh, all of these policies that were systemic that promoted state sanctions discrimination, uh, because I call poverty violence myself. And so uh, we called it a community action plan. And we just started working. We worked together with students from the Portland Student Union at Portland State University, students from Reed College, Lewis and Clark, groups like uh, the Portland Rising Tide. And um, just so many organizations came together to build what we now call a community action plan for Don't Shoot Portland. So... Has your influence, do you think, um, uh, more awareness uh, about uh, police issues and racism within uh, police departments all around and including Portland? Are we making headway? We're making a lot of headway. I've, I've seen my, um, you know, quotes and articles from The Atlantic to The Wall Street Journal to Reuters, Forbes. We've been in so many daily costs, so many uh, global media outlets uh, talking about strategy, organizing and political activism. And when you can get past being in the street and being known for, you know, taking over a bridge or something and be known for harnessing the political activism and taking it to legislators and working on, you know, group committees, getting people to go to your state capitol and lobby, um, that's a big opportunity because uh, the real change comes from people being engaged with the process. And a lot of people are intimidated by the political process uh, because leaders don't bring them in. A lot of times you have leaders that say, I represent these diverse communities, and they'll come out, they'll take a photo op with communities of color or marginalized communities, and that's the extent of their relationship. Uh, Don't Shoot Portland has created leaders throughout of our communities. We have elder leaders. We have youth leaders. We have disabled leaders. We have, you know, LGQBA, uh, TX. You know, everybody is a leader in our movement because we empower through education. And the expectation is that we will continue to support one another using what we learn. What would you like uh, people in the suburbs to know, white people to know? And uh, what uh, what would you like to communicate to them? How can... 
How can we all get together in fighting racism? Well, I think, first of all, white people need to understand that it's okay to recognize racism, Mm -hmm. even if it's within ourselves, because we're products of America. America has a social consciousness that is uh, propagated on white supremacy. We have a patriarchy. Um, We have a lot of misogyny. Trump fits right into the whole American pie and the the dream of America. Uh, And we have to realize that we have to own that and we have to say if we recognize it there's something we can do about it in my opinion a concrete step right now is to demand an indictment of the officer who shot and killed Qantas Hayes progressive spirit is produced each week in the studios of KBOO in Portland Oregon and is distributed through the Pacifica radio network and through PRX the public radio exchange you can download podcasts at progressivespirit.net You can also find Progressive Spirit wherever you find podcasts, including Podomatic, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast app. Follow Progressive Spirit on Twitter and comment on the show on Facebook. From Portland, I'm John Shaw. Be well. And I'm in the now, and it don't take no extra.